Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Hello, my name is Ian Williams and uh, welcome to this uh, edition of Scientific Sense. Today, our guest is uh, Professor Carol Gould. Um, Carol is a professor of philosophy at Florida Atlantic University and um, her interests are quite wide. Um, Her primary work and publications are around the areas of aesthetics, the philosophy of psychiatry and ancient Greek philosophy. Um, She is currently um, just about finishing a book on true glamour, which is a very interesting topic and has been really relatively unexplored uh, in philosophy. Um, So we're very uh, happy to have uh, Professor Gould uh, join us today. Welcome, Carol. Hi, how are you, Ian? I'm well, thank you. I'm very well. It's a pleasure to be here. Good, good. Um, This um, uh, interview discussion is a little different from some of the, or perhaps most of the historical scientific sense ones in that we're going to be looking today um, a little more in the art area. And um, one of the areas uh, or the topics that we thought to discuss (laughs) is to start with the fundamental issue and, and ask ourselves, Uh, the question really, what is art? Um, As um, technologies, social mores, all kinds of things change over the uh, millennia and increasingly by the day. Um, So what has been considered (laughs) as art and discussed as art is also changed. Um, So this is a topic we would like to discuss. And um, in talking with Carol, prior to um, this uh, uh, interview, um, she pointed to a, I suppose you'd call it a seminal paper um, by a fellow called uh, Danto, Arthur Danto from uh, Harvard, um, that was published in the 1960s, um, in which he attempted to um, address this question. Um, So with that sort of introduction, Carol, 
I wonder if you would um, just sort of like to um, start a little bit with some sort of context of how people have thought about art and, and how that's sort of changed in your perception. Oh, yes, that's a very important question, Ian. And one of the things that's interesting here is that, um, first of all, even though people have been talking about art since Plato, <laughs> um, the concept of art per se is a realm kind of separate from life, um, is relatively new um, in terms of, if, you, if we look at the expanse of millennia, it, it's relatively new in that, you know, it's really in, kind of started in the 18th century, but we won't go there. We'll stay, <laughs> we'll stay here from the 1960s on or maybe a little before. Um, there are a couple of things we have to distinguish, and one is to start with that a theory of a that gives us a definition of art is not necessarily a theory that gives us a way to evaluate art. We can say what art is without saying, we can, and we can know what it is or believe we know what it is to say what's, that something is a work of art but we might not know what our criteria should be for evaluating it. And these two questions are often conflated, so I wanted to um, distinguish them from the very beginning. The, uh, and what Danto is discussing here is the notion of uh, the, the definition of art. And it, this was an incredible period <laughs> during, in, in, if we look at the history of art or just culture in a sense and material culture um, because it was where we began to see things like pop art, Andy Warhol with the Brillo boxes and we'll see yeah. and things. And yeah. we also saw something called happenings <laughs> uh, which were a little different and Danto isn't going into that. Now, one of the things to keep in mind here is that unlike others who have tried to, to define art, um, many others, I should say, um, Dante seems to be talking primarily about painting, uh, although sculpture, you know, the, the visual arts. Um, but it would, you know, many, many people define art in ways that it could be uh, applied to uh, to other genres, other media. Um, for example, around the same time, because a lot, and let's, re let's remember that within the arts per se, a lot was happening in the mid 20th century. Uh, and, you know, we had the emergence of abstract expressionism, for example, in the 40s and 50s. And that was an incredibly uh, amazing um, point in, in history, historical moment, because uh, first of all, it moved to the center of art. It, it was a, it really established that the center of art uh, was New York. It, that is to say, it moved from Paris to New York, you know, to, to the States. Yeah. And, and that was fascinating in a number of ways. So, you know, we have, uh, we have this emergence of abstract expressionism, and that's that was quite different. It challenged one of the traditional notions of art uh, as a, um, representation, say, um, and also another traditional notion of art. Although it, it says expressionism, it's not 
what saved the romantics meant by art being expression of emotion. Okay, um, this was something else entirely. Um, so, yeah, so I was going to say that in the, when we see that, one of the things that happened is that people would go to these galleries and so forth, um, or shows, MoMA, they, they might look at, um, at, say, Jackson Pollock, and we're not even getting to Andy Warhol yet, <laughs> and say, that's not art, that's just a mess. Right. <laughs> that's just a mess, you know. I don't even see anything there. Or, you know, they might look at um, another abstract uh, painting and say, oh, you know, what does that look like to you? Are those clouds? Are those, <laughs> Are those flowers? You know, something. But that's not the point of, you know, abstract expressionist art. Um, you know, when we, I, I would distinguish, first of all, between two sorts of abstraction, one being the kind we found in the early 20th century with people like Picasso and Matisse, who were abstracting, when they were abstracting the elements of visual perception, they were um, often using um, objects, subjects, you know, people, that is to say, um, room, you know, interiors, uh, landscapes. But, but the point is that the things that were in them were recognizable, but you could see that they were not working in three dimensions. You know, they were flattening the picture space. They were trying to show us what the fundamental elements of our visual field were. That, that's, that's putting it very crudely, but allow me. And then we get to the mid 20th century and the notion of abstraction becomes totally different. And actually the uh, theories of art started to change. I mean, even um, now, one of the things Danto, I believe, wants to show us from the, from the beginning, or at least after the introduction of, of this article, is he wants to, uh, to see that there's a close connection, a close, let's call it a conversation, if we may, between what's going on in the world of art, what artists are doing, and what theorists are saying about it. And by theorists, I want to distinguish a theory, a theorist of art, a, you know, philosophical theorist of art from a critic. Okay, so, you know, art critics are in a, they're working in implicitly, maybe unconsciously from a theory of what art is, but it's the philosopher or, you know, the critic in his <laughs> wearing a philosopher's or theorist's hat who tries to define what art is, which, and anytime we make a claim about an artwork, we are presupposing a theory. Yeah. But Danto wants us to see that <clears throat> there is a kind of dialectical conversation going on between, you know, what, what artists are doing and what theories are formulated about it. And that's why, uh, but I, I'm sorry, I'm dominating everything here. <laughs> well, can I, just, um, can I just ask something there? So yes, that, sure. Um, that that our, list, our listeners can um, appreciate this perhaps. As I read the paper and coming to your, uh, I think a critical point here about theory and, and theory of art, he talks about um, an imitation theory where for perhaps it's to the middle of the, well, I'm not sure, 14th, 15th century or wherever, art was largely imitative. Um, 
um, portraits, landscapes, um, not any particular interpretation of how they look to that artist um, with some sort of um, uh, emotional or psychological coloring. And then we start to move into what he later calls a sort of reality theory, um, which um, we can discuss in a minute. My question here and what I'd like to, uh, to hear your thoughts on are this idea of um, these theories, because I suppose in one sense, what, what makes the theory, how can I put it, um, uh, seriously considered? Is it the, the, the thinkers and, and, and philosophers of, of art who um, respond to a theory and, and say that this sort of makes sense? I mean, I could come up with a theory that could encompass lots of things that perhaps today still aren't really considered art but that doesn't make it a, a sort of a valid or, or bona fide theory. Do you understand my question? Here? Oh, yes, certainly. Certainly I do. Um, and that's a great question. And, you know, actually, when Dante, he, he gives us these two theories, the IT or imitation theory and the reality theory. But in fact, and uh, I, I would say that there are other theories of art that, you know, came in, <laughs> before, you know, sort of in between, let's say. Right. Um, for example, you know, didactic theories, you know, art as, you know, something, especially in the Middle Ages, you know, that, that teaches us. I mean, in a way, um, medieval art is not, uh, it doesn't strive for verisimilitude. It strives for, uh, uh, to help us along as we follow our itinerary. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> from, uh, from original sin to some kind of uh, transcendence, but um, and you know the function of art was to guide us to and to teach us and and so forth and and a lot of other things too. I mean we think of art as having uh, so you know and then then we get to say the Renaissance and we have you know another well then we get back to the what he calls the imitation theory or representational theory. And where the artist is striving for verisimilitude, and uh, and then yes, as you as you, you say, um, and and there were many many schools of art within that. So you know you, you could have one theory that's speaking to or applies to um, many different schools of art. You know, like seventeenth century genre painting. And, yeah. So how are these theories um, influenced? If, if we start to think about um, uh, the broader public, for example, and how they have started to respond to art, to view it. Um, so you raise a good point about um, um, the didactic value of art um, in relation to various religions. Um, and that's clearly a very important role um, but is the, is the theory sort of post hoc um, to explain what's going on? And if it does, it, then is, is that a tool to enable the non-expert to appreciate what is art and what is not? Well, I think in, in some ways, yes. Um, uh, you know, 
And when you talk about, um, you know, didactic art, you know, it, it's not just religious, it can be also social propaganda. Yes, well. sure, of course. And, um, but, uh, no, I don't think it's ad hoc. I think, I think Danto's analogy with science and scientific theories is brilliant. I, I, I love that part of the article because, um, you know, in new, as new scientific theories evolve, they're not just ad hoc. I meant I meant post hoc. I didn't mean ad hoc. Yeah, sort of, sort of like after it happened. Post hoc. Yeah, people people um, then go back and look at it and say, oh yes, well this is obvious was didactic because you know the the art was funded by the church or by whatever it might have been. You know, um, so the, yeah, and it's not as if arts artists are thinking of theories when they're when they're working, right. but. Um, but the point is this, you know, he said that whenever you have new, new phenomena observed, and in both cases with art and science, I would say, um, <clears throat> you have uh, technology changing what we can and can't perceive, right, or observe. Yeah. Sure. And so... Uh, you and you would be a better authority on the, the scientific than I, but um, from what I, uh, uh, you know, read in philosophy of science, and uh, you know, I talk to some, I do hang out with some scientists. Uh, we talk about these things. Um, you know, new kinds of observations, sometimes very seminal ones. Uh, you know lead to certainly, let's say, expansions of theory, modifications of the theory, and sometimes ultimately evolve into new theories, um, you know, sure. competing uh, that over, overtake them. Um, and Danto says that whenever you see new phenomena, whenever a new type of phenomena is observed in science, you know, there there has to be an explanation. <laughs> and he's saying that this is the same in the art world. Now, may I digress for a moment? Please. Uh, okay. At the same time that, around the time, I should say, and not independently of Danto's article, um, another philosopher named George Dickey proposed something called the institutional theory of art. And he too was responding to all these things that many people, you know, are trying to figure out why is that art and so forth. <laughs> and one of the things that, and, and that was, I think he came out with that in around 1967, 1970, but or maybe, yeah, around that time. And the institutional theory of art, defined art is any artifact offered as a candidate for appreciation by a member of the art world. Mm -hmm. So if, uh, say, uh, you know, in, in ele we, you know, we hear now about elephants painting, <laughs> you know, if you took a, a, say, a canvas on which an elephant had, had um, doodled, uh, and, but if, it, say, a curator put it in a museum or a gallery, um, it becomes an artwork, but it's not the elephant's artwork, it's the curator's because they're yeah. a member of the art world. Sure. Um, or if you see some beautiful object in nature and you put it on, and an artist puts it on display, mm -hmm. 
um, that's the artist's uh, work, not yes. the natural things. And and this was important. Um, I think it's a, well, I, I don't want to digress too much, but I think it's um, a flawed theory. And one thing, the reason I mention it is because Danto's theory of the art world is quite different. It's not quite as politically, socio-political and, you know, grounded at a certain point. I think that Danto's notion of the art world, in a way, transcends culture and history. Um, not everyone would agree with that, but I, I think that that's true. Um, Can so, I just ask a question here before sure. we leave um, uh, the example of the digression you just made? Um, of course, one of the, and we'll revisit this later, but one of the key questions here for me is, well, who, who is this person who is presenting something as art? Um, does she or he have to have some kind of credentials or could it just be anybody? Um, and so if they, um, you know, put something out there, um, try to enter it into a show or I don't know, sell it in a yard sale or whatever, um, and say, <laughs> and say that this is art, um, what, what, as opposed to, let's say a bona fide artist who, um, may have credentials as a painter, and then she decides to, I don't know, tape a banana to the wall and say, that's art. Does okay, that, that one. <laughs> you know, well, I just thought I'd throw that in, you know, because <laughs> I think you. people think about that. But, yeah. you know, I, I think perhaps you understand what I'm saying. I, I, and so that, that then, and to a certain extent, if there is, well, let me finish, let me finish on that point. I mean, so does it have to be a credentialed artist? And if so, what does that mean? Who is, who is opining that this is art? Well, actually, Dickie does have a problem with that. And I think that, you know, of course, then you have a problem with, is there an infinite regress? How do you get credentials if you, if you haven't mm -hmm. exhibited or something? But, um, no, Dickie allows that anyone who, say, a curator, a critic, even a student, um, someone involved in, in art, um, but no, not if somebody said, oh, um, you know, somebody has a yard sale and <clears throat> puts his little kids, um, you know, painting. Yeah. But that's <laughs> not true of science, though. That's not true of science, is it? So, for example, no. there's, there's a long and, and a impressive history of amateur, um, non-scientifically trained people who've made important contributions, right? Right. And the same is true in art. And one, one slight problem, though, that Dickey's theory has um, that I think, I think does not afflict Dante's notion of the art world is that there is a phenomenon called outsider art, which you may be familiar with, which um, is art that's produced or works that are produced by people who are somewhat marginal and you know, may not even be aware that what they're doing is making art, but yeah. do things that, and they're not trained. And it became quite, um, quite a popular phenomenon, quite hip um, in, in certain circles. Um, there have been exhibitions of it in some major places, but, uh, but still, 
you know, people who are members of the art world are people who understand, you know, the notion of art. But for Dickey, um, it doesn't have the same, it, it's, it's definitely situated. Um, whereas for Danto, I think it involves sort of an understanding. People can inhabit the art world without being an artist, you know, to yes. understand. And sure. the idea is that uh, you can under, you, you know, you might observe something and intuit what it's trying to accomplish artistically. <clears throat> and that's because you have some understanding of what art is. Um, now, he, he points this out um, where he talks that, and, and, you know, of course, he's not saying that art and science are identical, or that the theory, the structure of their theories are identical. But he does say that they're closely analogous in that way. Now, so they're both trying to explain how certain things that appear to be non-art, you know, that seem to be just very simple things, are in fact artworks. Uh, so, but Dickey's theory is problematic because, you know, it allows that, um, say, the elephant, you know, doesn't have the intent, doesn't bring the intentionality to the painting, or if it does, it's not in the human sense um, of intentionality. You know, we, we don't yet understand, or maybe never, we may never understand what that would involve. But, uh, you know, one, one thing that's key to Danto's theory is intentionality, oh. as, you may, as you may have noticed. Yeah. Uh, you know, because he, when he gives us those two examples of the paintings that look the same but have different meanings, you know, it's clear that artistic intentions are involved. <clears throat> right. Um, but, can I just, I'd like to, this is, gets into a very interesting point, but before we leave, I'd like to come back to something you just said. And I think um, Danto is saying when he's drawing these parallels between art and science, and as you said, he's not being overly rigorous about that. But there is a very clear scientific paradigm of um, observation, theory generation, testing, and reproducibility. And those sort of four groups really define science. So if you want to make a scientific assertion, then you need all those four parts. Um, whereas I'm not so sure with art, perhaps you could help us understand how if indeed this is relevant, because it comes down to obviously the question of what is art, and then we'll be here for a millennia. But it, <laughs> it, it, it is sort of fundamental to this. And I'm trying to imagine our listeners, you know, thinking about art, well, I know what I like and all that kind of stuff. But um, when people start talking about theories of art and, and invoking expert approval and insight and all that sort of thing, it, there is really, it's very difficult to get a, um, a handle on it when there's really no robust definition of what you're talking about. Is, is, is... Well, yes, and that's one reason why we have people since Plato who've been who've been trying to pinpoint what that is, so that we do have an idea of what we're talking about. And I think that it really became a problem in the 20th century 
Um, first of all, one thing that Danto points out is that, um, uh, you know, um, sorry, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't Danto. But one thing that, well, yeah, he does point this out, that when, once we have photography, once photography emerged in the 19th century, um, it seemed that if painting was imitation or representation, well, photography could do it better, it was thought. Um, it could do it with more precision, you know, more accuracy. Yeah. So yeah. That, that led to, actually, that, that, I think, was one of the several cultural factors that propelled abstraction, you know, and, and the, what, what are called the post-impressionist art. And, and that's a rather arbitrary term, but, uh, you know, that's where people would come in. I mean, we, we think of some of the canonical painters, uh, names that you would, anyone would, um, most people, I should say, would recognize, like Matisse or Picasso. Um, you know, they're iconic, right? Um, but at one time, they were dismissed as lunatics. Sure, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, that's because they weren't, it was clear that they weren't striving for representation. And that became, and, and then of course we see that developed uh, later in, in the mid-century, especially by American artists. But uh, so we, we see then that, you know, this definition was so ingrained in Western culture that, you know, art should strive for truthfulness and to, to, to observation. Um, that uh, when people like Matisse or say Duchamp in his cubist experimental days with, you know, new descending a staircase, um, the, uh, you know, that they seemed to, uh, it, it, there was a cognitive dissonance because they, here you had these trained artists and let's just stick with the trained artists for now. And they were producing these things that were clearly not striving for realism or for representation or even uh, necessarily emotional expression. Although <clears throat> if you know the biographies of the artists or with the, their remarks on them, you, know, you would know that perhaps there is some artistic expression involved um, of emotion rather. Um, or that I, I'm, and see, that's a tricky concept too, because what that means is highly suspect and ambiguous. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the question is, well, why should that be art? You know, and yet in a sense, they knew it was art. Now, when you get to the mid-century and you see something like, you know, <laughs> a Brillo box, um, or, or even earlier in the century when Duchamp exhibited his a notorious fountain or the bicycle wheel or um, this little teeny vial of <laughs> that he brought back from Paris and he called it Paris Air, which in a yeah. sense it was <laughs> until it broke. <laughs> and, um, but you know, he, that, you know, those things didn't, those were found objects, you know, what are called found objects. Yeah. And, um, and actually Duchamp was, was a, brilliant um, and, and really, I, I would say, a very sensitive artist. This was just one phase in his, you know, his 
his artistic career, his creative life, um, and yet people think that that's, they define it as him, his artistic self, you know, his, they define, they take that to define him as an artist. But, so they saw that and they, here was this person who was clearly artistically trained, who knew what he was doing, um, but pr produced this, I mean, you know, was he, was he hoodwinking us? You know, what, what's going on? So, you know, then we get someone like Danto coming along and saying, well, look, there's this whole concept that we have to look at. And that is that art should not, you know, that is no longer really just representational. And, uh, you know, another thing to... Um, um, let me just stop you there, because that's an interesting, um, just um, um, a bit of a hop there, because um, so Danto says that, um, you know, this is an example where we have clearly uh, artists with track records, competent, recognized as, let's say, painters, and then they move into some area where there is no tradition, um, there is no theory, but then it becomes art. And is that so let's explore that transition a bit, because it's really once it becomes art, then you can develop a theory as to what art could be. But I'm really interested in from going from the, 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 the urinal to art. Um, what, what is it just because he is such a, or was such a, a, a great artist and appreciated as such, that ipso facto anything he does or asserts that is, is art becomes art. Um, and if not, what is it that makes that? Well, you see, that, that was what, that's what the institutional theory of, of Dickey would say, because he is a great artist and whatever, whatever yeah. he offers us must be art. But Danto's theory is, is a little different because what he's saying, first of all, I think that he... Uh, he can apply it, I mean, a good theory should be able to apply not only to contemporary art or to the contemporaneous art, but it should be able to apply in some sense to all art. Yes. And I think Dante is well aware of that because at the end of that article, he has something called the matrix of style, which yes. we can talk about or not. Um, and <clears throat> so it's clear that he thinks that sometimes, you know, some artists, you know, they they push the boundaries, and in fact, that's one of the things that makes them so brilliant. <laughs> um, it, it's when they when they do that, when, uh, whether it's within a genre or you know, within, uh, in, or very radically like this. Um, so, but there's always been controversial art. I mean, in almost any time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Beethoven, but, it, but yeah. So, some, uh, not all of it, well, is this true? I was going to say not all of it then falls into or is accepted as such. Uh, well, that's an interesting question. Are there cases where um, um, there has been, uh, people have, have talk, talked about art or asserted it's art or whatever, and then it's sort of fallen out? I don't, I don't think so, are there? I'm not sure what you mean by fallen out, but... 
Well, it's no longer considered as art per se. Um, huh, I'd have to think, try to think of an example of that. Um, I mean, there's some, it, there we'd have to get into value. I mean, some things that are very bad art are still considered art. <laughs> yes, right. You know, they're, they're just not very good or interesting or they're, you know. Well, the value you raise is a very interesting question, isn't it? Because for things to be, uh, I don't know, preserved, referred to, whatever, they 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 have some value either heuristically or because people seek them out. Um, um, they have value potentially as investments, all that sort of thing. Yes. Uh -huh. um, so, uh, well, let's go back to the banana just for a moment. Will that, so that was sold for what? I don't know, $100,000, whatever crazy thing it was. Um, <laughs> will, will that still, is that art? And, and, and will it still be viewed as such as time goes on? Is it still viewed as such? I'm not sure it was ever viewed as such, <laughs> um, except that it, you know, it sold in the art market, on the art market. Yeah, and so that's not definition sold. enough. The, but the, I think that um, that's really an aberrant, pro that's a good counterexample. <laughs> and you're asking, if it, it's hard for me to be polite about that. <laughs> well, don't, please um, don't be. <laughs> well, do you think it was just a con? Is it just a con then and that it should be recognized as such? And then, of course, what about NFTs? Is that a continuum on that same kind of thing? The reason I'm bringing all this up is because I think this is what listeners are thinking about. You know, I imagine that, that, that you know, the sort of the, the, the Picasso moving from a, a very imitative, competent artist to impressionist incorporation of African masks, all that sort of thing, whilst very... Um, iconoclastic at the time now are just part of the established art world um, whereas the things that are happening now seem well I, I, perhaps I'm wrong in saying this perhaps they too will become established in, in this way but you're very clear that the banana was not an art and won't that, that well uh, you know some people thought in, in one sense it was because it was accepted by at least some people in the art world and someone spent money on it. Yeah. And, you know, you see, one thing that I think has, has muddied this, this issue is uh, the, uh, just the art market and how inflated it is financially. Uh, you know, when you hear of these, these things, some of these things selling for, you know, for eight figures, nine figures. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's it's extraordinary, and, and many people find it, uh, especially now and today with, you know, the wealth gap, the ever-growing wealth gap, um, I think that, um, you know, it, it's offensive to many. But um, to tell you the truth, I don't know much about the artist who produced the banana, um, it, uh, I probably should know about it, <laughs> but I, I didn't, uh, I, I thought that was a stretch. And the same thing is true of some of the happenings, um, in the 1960s and actually some of the performance art that we see, I think some of that too is, 
is a stretch, but yet, uh, but I think that Danto would say, um, okay, and, and this is perhaps where uh, we have to, we can see the distinction clearly. It's not good art, but the artist is, or the, the creator, the maker, is um, producing something that is art, um, and it has a meaning. It's what he would call an embodied intention. <laughs> um, but and, and also, I, I want to say that there's some really fine art being uh, produced today, some remarkable art. And um, in fact, I, I believe I sent you the um, video about yes, the, yeah, the, the you know, the, the extraordinary, and that's, I mean, just one very small example. Yeah, yeah. But sure. you know, and sometimes you, you see, I think the problem comes in where you can't distinguish that where people don't even know whether it's art. Some people think right. it isn't and they throw it away. That happened to um, <laughs> an installation that Damien Hirst was putting together for a gallery in London. And uh, it w when he left for the evening um, after he had started, the custodian thought that it was just some trash and right. <laughs> and right. you know threw it away, yeah. uh, and and that sort of thing does happen. So <laughs> uh, that's um, you know that's what we that's where the problem comes in. If somebody says, "Why is that art?" Okay, sometimes it's because it's just so outrageous. They think, well anyone could do that, or that's just lurid, um, that's sensationalism, or that's, um, uh, you know, just, um, uh, it, it's, it's just arbitrary, you know, something like that. Um, that's, um, that's when we get into the problem. First of all, if you can't recognize that it's art, and then you, you want to look at it and you sort of know it's art because it's, it's of the way it's assembled or created or whatever, and you say, well, why is it art? And that's where, in both cases, we need a definition. Right. And um, do we have one? Well, <laughs> um, if you're, if, I mean, if you're asking me, I mean, it's, that's a very important question. I mean, we, I, if you're asking me my view, I, that would be, that would take us a little time here. Well, I, but, but before, yeah. before answering that, let me, let me, because that is a key issue in many people's mind, and I'm not yeah. sure that is ever resolvable, but it, it's sort of this, you, you mentioned this um, with the, um, when we brought up the issue about value, um, people's interest in art in one sense one would think the first thing would be well aesthetic it gives me pleasure i mm -hmm. see something and it could be a shell picked up and placed on a block of stone and that's the most beautiful thing i've seen and clearly is art and the artist's intention um or uh, you know was successful but then there are all these other factors coming into art but most particularly the value where if it's pleasant for somebody to use just a colloquial expression, then it has value, but it has value, but 
but that value can be monetized. And once that starts to happen, that I think, in my mind, causes this whole question of what is art to become a lot more edgy. So, for example, let's come back to this dastardly banana. Um, that there may be some people who um, would look at that and say, well, yeah, I kind of like that. It's, a, it, 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 it's a little bit of mockery. It's a little bit of humor, whatever, you know, and it, it has some value in that sense. But as soon as it sells for 100, 120, whatever it was, then um, that becomes a lot more um, edgy um, and, and transcends a little bit about out of the purely aesthetic pleasure-giving aspects of art to this mm, fairly sordid, bizarre world of art valuation. And I wonder, is there anything that can help us in that? Well, I, I think, first of all, we want to distinguish between the question of what is aesthetic value from, you know, what is art, because there are many things that are aesthetic and actually that people that theorists and philosophers talk about, like the aesthetics of nature, which you can't really buy, um, you know, sure. and the aesthetics of everyday objects and so forth. There's a whole area in philosophy right now called everyday aesthetics, and um, and as you know, I work on the aesthetics of persons, which has to do, <laughs> to do with something else. And um, but yes, you're right. As soon as you have something that's, you see, I think the problem here is you're talking about something that's a work of conceptual art, and you know, conceptual art. At least that I think that's the best way to define that or to, to describe that piece that you're talking about, the banana, um, is conceptual art. And there I think the question would be, okay, it's conceptual, um, but is it that witty, you know, or, or is it that interesting or that's, you know, that serious? Um, you see, I think with Duchamp, and, and this has a lot to do with when he did it, okay, that's... Yeah. Because yeah. that's one one reason why we need to know something about the history of the entity, because um, otherwise it can seem just imitated. But the thing about Duchamp with his, say, fountain um, or something like that is that um, it was very witty. And it was also he was taking a dig at the art world, if you know... Um, if you ever uh, take a look at the, the history of, of uh, its reception at the time. Um, but that's where, where I think, you know, its value comes in. Yeah. Um, so, but now is the, so I would say that we have a criterion here with the banana, but we're not going to look at it in terms of, if we're looking at it as conceptual art, we have to bring in other kinds of criteria. If, we're looking at a Jackson Pollock um, or something like that, um, you know, or a de Kooning, um, a Chagall, um, then we have other questions. Uh, do, you, do you see? I mean, then we have yes, I do. the artistic. I mean, where the artistic and the aesthetic converge. Yeah. Now, and I, I think that's an important distinction some things are very skillful and you know good works of art and 
others are are just sensational. They're they're they, tra you know, they're transcendent. We, you know, they they take our breath away. We lose we lose track of of the you know the world recedes, <laughs> and um, I I think that that's nicely illustrated in in an old movie by. Um, uh, by Peter Schaffer, uh, the you know the playwright, and it's called Amadeus, where you have these two composers, Mozart and his rival Salieri, or at least, well, you know, this is all shrouded in mystery. Um, but the way it's depicted in the film in Amadeus is that Mozart's work had some aesthetic merit, and is you know that Salieri just couldn't achieve. Sure. Although he was a gifted musician, a gifted composer, um, and very talented, let's say, and well-trained, but he wasn't Mozart. And so that's that's where the aesthetic comes in. What makes Mozart's work? But, but that's public aesthetic. opinion, is that it was, it's really public opinion that, that and that, that decides that, right? Well, I no. Well, actually, I I would say not. <laughs> um, I think in some cases, yes, but there are many, <clears throat> many things, many artworks, um, and um, whole bodies of art by certain artists that are not commercially successful, but they are aesthetically successful. And sometimes they're recognized as such much later. Um, there are, you know, history is filled with cases of artists and, and also scientists and, and other thinkers <clears throat> who may not have been appreciated in their, in their time, but, you know, are artists whose work didn't sell. Uh, yeah. Yet now we, we realize that, it, now that they were aesthetically artistically important and sometimes it was not commercial commercially successful because it did uh, stretch the boundaries test the boundaries of a given genre or you know, use of materials or something like that or it introduced new technology new way of doing something mm -hmm. um, so and and by technology with painting you, you know I'm thinking of all kinds of things you know the Development and developments and the brushes and the tools and you know that's of course. Sort of thing. Yeah. So um, it, it, these are things. So so I think that something being commercially successful is not necessarily <clears throat> doesn't entail that it's aesthetically. No. Successful. I I would agree. Yes, that's a. I I think my my thought was really about this this definition of art of um when uh, when does something become art and i i keep coming back and perhaps i'm wrong on this or perhaps this is not a valuable viewpoint but i i'm thinking of the sort of the common person in the street um who would say um that that something is 
But it seems to me then that the, the value ascribed to a piece, perhaps because of its intrinsic aesthetic qualities, perhaps for something that's been engineered, um, you know, a market sort of created in some way, that it then becomes art. And it's like the emperor has no clothes. And so if someone pays $2 million for a painting, then one, I think the average person will say, well, it must have artistic merit um, because it doesn't have any material value. Um, and, and so it sort of then becomes art in the general person's mind. Um, do you see what I'm saying? Yes, I do see what you're saying. Um, it, and sometimes people are, don't see it as art. They're just annoyed by it. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Especially if, you're not, if there's a person that Danto calls Testadura, um, you know, the, the, yeah. who would be, say, the representative of the person you're talking about or the, the audience or, or spectators you're talking about. Um, and uh, so if we um, consider that, you know, you have this whole issue. I mean, what, what would they appreciate? I mean, what would they see as, as good art? Often it's what we would say is kitsch. Yeah. <laughs> and so that is, I think, um, uh, a difference. Now, one thing we should notice here, Ian, because I know you, you, you found this article as intriguing as I do. Um, one thing we should notice is that Danto doesn't really talk about value, does he? No, he doesn't. You're right. And so he, too, is trying, in, in a sense, that shows us how focused he is on the definitional question. Yeah. And, you know, the evaluative question is a whole different issue. Yeah. You know? it's, it's probably a red herring for this discussion in, in many ways. And I'm, I'm sort of sorry for getting us on that sidetrack. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, as I, as I no, sort of reflect... All. As I reflect on it, you're 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 quite right. There are, uh, it 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 is much more about this. I think the the Mozart Salieri was a good example because there's something ineffable about Mozart, and you don't have to be a musician to appreciate it. Um, you can listen to two pieces even as an ordinary non-musical person, I think, and just feel look at some paintings and you can say they're dead i mean they're technically superb but they're just dead they don't they don't mm -hmm. fire my imagination they don't spark anything and so it's really that kind of quality is that kind of quality so disparately subjective that there are six billion different ways of seeing <laughs> you know or is yeah. there or is there something sort of unifying there that we're trying to define? Because the thing that, that I often get Did we to lose? is... Sorry? Something happened. Wait. Are you okay? Whoops. You, you guys cannot hear each other? I couldn't. I lost, I lost uh, Ian. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> can, you, can you hear me, Carol? Pardon me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now, Gil. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear okay. you now. <laughs> so, so I think if you guys have time, we can do another session 
Sure. I have time. Sure. So yeah. let me send you, let me terminate this one and I'll send you another link. Okay. okay. Be before we do that, um, yeah. um, so Carol, I, I, I'm not sure I'm being very helpful here because there are so many things and we, we sort of touch on them and then we go off somewhere else. And I'm, I'm trying to, and perhaps wrongly, Gil, you tell me. I'm no, trying let, to... let, let me tell you guys, uh, this, is, this is absolutely great. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's just a fresh, you know, breath of fresh air, I should say. You know, it just, um, it's a really interesting conversation. The problem with uh, science, Ian, uh, and uh, I'm not a scientist, but I play one on podcasts, <laughs> uh, is that yeah, it is very prescriptive. Um, yeah, it, there is a lot of flexibility, right? Right, no, uh, no, no. And so I love um, ideas that is not prescriptive. But there's a downside to it, and that is that is why I keep pushing on my emails to you guys. Yeah, it all sounds right, but what is it? Yeah. Well, perhaps that's the wrong yeah. question. Perhaps yeah. that's even the wrong question. Yeah. Which would be something. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Carol. But um, it's. Oh, if you ask me, I'll tell you. So, so, so okay. Well, let's link. Yeah, send the link, and we'll start with that. Okay. All right. Bye. Okay. Okay, which email are you sending it to, Gil? I can send to both of you, both of your email, Gil. Okay, I mean, Proton Mail is fine. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's okay. sure. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. To hear your views. One thing that keeps coming up um, is how can we make any progress here without a definition of what art is? And it occurred to me, am I just being too traditional or unhelpful in trying to insist about a definition do we really need one and if what what would change if we did have one what would change well i think that um it may not be as precise i mean this is a question philosophers have debated for if you know um and I would say, especially since Kant in the 18th century. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an important question, and as is value, because especially given the economy and you know, the, the vast um, economic power that, that the art world has yielded, uh, the art market, I should say. Um, but... Yes, I, I think it's an important question because every time someone looks at a work, um, they're in a sense bringing to it an idea of what art is or what it what it should be. <laughs> um, and what you you asked before, Ian, about value, I don't think that is a red herring. I think the question of what makes a work valuable or gives it 
artistic or aesthetic value um, is an important question and it, because we do judge works and uh, we, we make judgments about them uh, and that's the whole point. And when we judge them, we're presupposing something about the nature of art as well. Um, and you could look at, say, the same work from a variety of perspectives. Um, you know, bringing you could try different definitions. Saying that would be a good experiment. Um, for example, uh, one of one example that comes to mind, and <laughs> I've talked about this one um, in other places or other contexts, I should say, is that. Um, I happen to love certain paintings by Vermeer. And there's one that took my breath away, and it was um, called Mistress and Maid. And when I saw it, it was as if I had been hit by a lightning bolt, <laughs> you know, except I yeah. remained alive <laughs> and unchanged. But, um, and well, I, no, you were changed, surely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realized that um, when I was looking at it, for, um, that I was just looking at it in terms of the light and how he had achieved this amazing quality. And then I heard somebody, it's in the Frick in, in New York, the Frick Collection. Yeah. And uh, someone, was, someone mentioned, well, that certainly is interesting in terms of the economy of you know, 17th century uh, Delft. You know? <laughs> Um, that was during the time of the tulip bubble when people were, you know, yeah. becoming, you know, going from rags to riches and riches to rags. <laughs> um, then the, um, uh, and they were talking about it in, in more of a terms, I would say almost a Marxist, from a Marxist perspective, not that they were, not that they were <laughs> Marxist, but that, they were looking at it in terms of the economy of when it was painted. Sure. You see what I mean? I and then I thought to myself, well, there are a lot of ways you could look at this because I was I was barely looking at the subject matter. I was so fascinated yeah. by color. Sure. And um, which is something that I think I personally have always been uh, quite taken by. And I say always because it goes, this goes back to my, my very early childhood. So, um, it, and then I realized, well, you know, you could look at this as a, um, as uh, from a feminist point of view, you know, and the kind of cultural dynamics and, um, and looking at it as, um, you know, the different, you know, different classes, you know, in terms of what it depicted about classes and the way Vermeer used costume and light and the background and so forth, you know, that there were, many ways to look at it. So, uh, so Carol, what you seem to be saying here, and I would entirely agree, it sort of gets back to this point that there, there isn't really a useful definition because all of those exemplars, and I, I, I don't think it's too facetious to say there would probably be six billion um, if you stood people in front of that Vermeer, they would see so many disparate things. And Well, yeah, if, if I may say so, um, you might see six billion <laughs> uh, different things, but not six different 
or six billion different definitions. It's just that there are different interpretations or descriptions. But you and I could both say, uh, ad adopt a formalist aesthetic, which tells us that, you know, art is essentially form. And when we describe it and evaluate it, we should just look at the formal elements. And because that's really what moves us aesthetically. Now, I was thinking about um, when you were talking about value, the value question being a red herring, I just wanted to mention that some questions of uh, some definitions incorporate the value question. You know, they, they try to answer both questions with their definition, even though they may not be aware of that. Um, and I'm thinking, in fact, of, you know, a, for a formalist. Um, you know, Clement Greenberg, mid-century, mid or Clive Bell and Roger Fry, whom, by the way, Danto mentions Fry. Yes. Uh, but uh, who look at art in terms of form and the imaginative use of it. And so, you know, the subject matter is irrelevant. Now, you and I might look at something from that perspective, say we both adopt that definition, but we mo might notice different things or have different ways of describing the same work. Um, be it a Vermeer or a, a Monet or, a, 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 you know. So, so you're saying that there oh. is, that it could be possible to have a, a definition that isn't, that is distinct from these other factors, the, the monetary value or the social mores at the time in Delft or mm -hmm. whatever, that transcends all of those. Sure. I mean, you know. And so the question is then, what is that? Yes. And you see there, and that's where the controversy comes in, the philosophical controversy. And we get new understanding by under, uh, of what art is when we look at competing definitions. And then we see where that leads to. Right. It's often a new theory that's more insightful or helpful. Yeah. So, but... The thing we have to keep in mind is that these theories are always a response to what is observed. Yes. And what's happening. <laughs> so let, let me ask this question, because um, I don't want us to run out of time without addressing a hot potato. Um, <laughs> and that is um, the um, non-fungible token stamp on... Um, um, Botticelli or whatever coming out of the Uffizi and selling for what is it, one hundred and fifty thousand or something? Um, what what do you now? In in one sense, it's a beautiful. Um, I look at the reproduction of uh, Botticelli or any of the masters, and I appreciate all the aesthetic things we've been talking about. There is something clearly lacking from not standing in the frick and, and being, you know, a foot away from the paintwork. But um, it's, the aesthetics are still there, but it's now uh, a copy, albeit a unique copy, um, and, but it has apparently value. Um, so what, what, do you, what do you make of that? Is that... Uh, is that going to be art? And that, I mean, there are two issues here. Of course, there's the the copies that are are NFTs, and then there are other um, pieces that people make as an NFT, right? Um, uh, which are unique; they don't exist elsewhere. Um, so, in any case, I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. 
My thoughts on that. Um, well, I'm still I, I'm <laughs> I'm still deliberating about these. They're very new. Um, offhand, I'm inclined to say that um, if they're art, um, then we have to go back and look at a lot of other things as art. For example, you know, anytime there's something is reproduced or printed, it could be, it's non-fungible just because it's a unique entity, you know, logically speaking or ontologically speaking, any object is identical with itself. <laughs> it's a unique entity, right? So you could take, um, like, you know, 20 postcards uh, made from Botticelli's Birth of Venus and, <laughs> you know, or and say, well, those are non-fungible tokens in a sense too. All we need is the stamp or, um, you know, print. I mean, if you look at them that way, um, maybe they're analogous to say, you know, printmaking. Um, I'm inclined to think not, but, um, but I would give it, I, you know, I'd, I'd have to try to work with that idea, you know, what, would exactly would make those instances different, either a commercially, you know, produced postcard of which there might be hundreds or thousands. And, you know, all that's missing is the numbering on them or, you know, say a print, a hoax eye print or something um, uh, that would be, um, I mean, those are considered works of art and, you know, a Printmakers produce works of art. Um, are NFTs more like a print and are uh, produced by an artist, or are they something else? Um, and I think that, as I think I may have mentioned to you, you know, I think that the pandemic produced the ideal ecology for NFTs because, you know, museums were suffering. People were were couldn't go to museums or galleries or just as we can't go to concerts, alas. Um, and so these places, you know, needed to, to be sustained. I mean, obviously the Uffizi wasn't selling tickets. It wasn't, you know, and so forth. Um, and yet it was, had employees who had to, um, who had to maintain the just the physical space and let alone attend to you know the conditions of the artworks and so in which the artworks were were existing. Um, so, you know, this was very this could be a very good way for people to <laughs> economically recover <laughs> from some of these catastrophes economically. So I think that, you know, but that's just the motivation, that might be a motivation, but the motivation doesn't mean that uh, that doesn't, has nothing to do with its value or what type of entity it is. So I think that, you know, I, there are two ways of looking at it from, as, as I see it. And um, one is that it's analogous to an artist, a numbered print. Um, another, way to look at it, I would say, um, you know, would be that it's not really a work of art and it's not really um, even analogous to a print. Um, and 
I, I've mentioned this before. I, there's a, a philosopher theorist named Walter Benjamin, um, who was, uh, he died in 1940, so he's not contemporary, but he had this notion of uh, a work of art, the original work of art, having an aura. And, you know, clearly reproductions, and, you know, they're, they're numerous. I mean, there are lots of kinds of reproductions of art. And, you know, we see them on magnets. <laughs> we see them on, you know, handbags and scarves and things like that. Uh, but those, um, but we also sometimes, you know, just, a pre, you know, we get, we see them reproduced in books or in fine prints, you know, really good quality prints. Um, what um, what makes those more or less valuable than the work itself? Well, when you see a work, you realize that there is something to it. There's a, you know, you have a fuller experience. Um, and you obviously will see things that you wouldn't see otherwise. And I think that's true with the Botticelli. <laughs> um, I don't know. Well, what do you think about it, Ian? Well, I, um, I, I find it. I'm not quite. I was going to say abhorrent, so <laughs> perhaps that says it all. Um, I, it, I, I find myself getting caught up in the logic. No, my my, for want of a better expression, my gut doesn't think of them as it as art. <laughs> um, it seems a scam, really, uh-huh. and um, yet. As soon as one says that, uh, as we've been discussing today, it doesn't take very long before you find yourself on very shaky ground because what's the difference really between that with an NFT tag on it and, you know, a myriad other things that, um, well, you know, Damien Hurst's work, um, lots of different things that um, whilst they, they employ a lot more skill, perhaps, um, but even ones that don't, it, it seems that there isn't really this robust definition that I can refer to and say, mm, that is not art. Not only do I not like it personally and I wouldn't pay for it and I don't find it aesthetically appealing aside from its mimicry, um, I, I, it's not art because this is what art is, you know? Well, actually, I mean, people have given robust definitions, but they're not... Uh, universally accepted. Well, that's always a problem in philosophy, right? As you, <laughs> you deal with it every day. Is, well, I mean, it, perhaps in order to have a discussion, then one would need to have a, um, a consensus on a definition. Say, this is our definition, you know, warts and all. And where does that get us? How does that progress a discussion on art? and its roles and all that sort of thing. Well, I think one can have a, a, you know, a, very, um, a very full and, and interesting discussion about artworks, even if someone hasn't articulated or tried, yes. tried to articulate oh, the theory clear, of, clear. of what art is, and you can yeah. learn a lot about art. Yeah. And I think that theoretical questions, are, are they all that different? I mean, they are different in a way from scientific questions, but you know, scientists disagree about things. <laughs> yeah. No, you're quite, you're quite right. And I, but it seems to me then, if you, if we both plop down in front of a Vermeer, um, and we can, that, that it's almost um, 
the discussion is different than being plopped down in front of the banana. Because there, when you're in front of the veneer, you're, it's a sort of a recognized master and all that goes with that. And you can talk about, you know, technicalities and was he as good a worker with light as Turner and where does he fit? Oh, blah, 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 blah. Whereas when you plop down in front of something like the banana or perhaps an NFT or then you, well, I was going to say, maybe uh, uh, I'm just getting myself tangled up here because then I, I start to see it as something other and that changes my whole reaction and response and thought. But uh, Well, I, Ian, let, let me ask you this. Do you think it might have something, if I may, <laughs> it, would it have something to do with the complexity or lack thereof <laughs> um, of, say, the Turner um, versus the banana? Yes, no question. It well, it yes, you're absolutely right. It it would. That would be sure, a this visual complexity and yes, use of materials um, and technical competence technical and a myriad of things. Yeah, yeah, and and also even if you just look at the banana and say, well, you can say it's it's a brilliant conceptual work. Well, I'd like to know why, <laughs> um, because in a sense, Turner's work is conceptual too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but it's so much more. <laughs> but the banana says by taping up the banana, he's saying, um, "I thought of doing this. I thought of putting it on this wall. Um, I thought I, I anticipated the uproar that this would cause, and it will probably do more to stimulate people thinking about art than anything you've seen here today." You know. Well, do you think he, do you think that the artist wanted? You see, this is a problem because it certainly made us think about. Although I didn't find it that inspiring or thought provoking, um, I didn't even find it provocative. I, I I wondered if it was you know a bid for attention on yeah. the, or recognition. Yes, you know, well, it could, but but a lot of art is that, right? A lot of art yep. is a cry, a cri de coeur, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. a heartfelt rent about pain and anguish that, that the artist, su artist is suffering. Um, listen to me, help me, whatever, you know? Well, or it may not be even that, that, that noble. <laughs> no, no, it may not be. Not that I, I, not, no. I don't want to malign any, anyone. I, I don't know, uh, you know, but... Um, if someone has gone unrecognized, yes, then it would be as you say, but... Well, I don't think it was that. I think I think perhaps we may both agree on this. I think it was just a cheeky sort of joke that got carried away. And maybe we should stop talking about it because I'm not sure that it's particularly informative. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think um, maybe we're just circling back over territory. I think Hearst is a very interesting recent phenomenon with you know sharks in tanks and mm -hmm. um uh, that that was really i i feel not technically competent or complex but provocative um yes <laughs> yeah although you could look at it i mean it's not without visual interest no no for sure it's Clearly. not to my taste but that's another matter oh, but no, it is right. 
very interesting visually because of the way the the part of the animal that you see. Yes. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it, but yeah, yeah. I found it somewhat visually interesting if you yeah. can if you can put a size, um, which may be hard to do, but I I found that when I could in those brief moments that I could put aside what it was, I found it um, you know, visually kind of remarkable. <laughs> mm. Well, I, 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 one thing that sticks in my mind from him is the diamond uh, studded uh, skull. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, no skill. Um, it, I think a lot of people would just, uh, attracted to it by virtue of all the diamonds on it. And then you've got the macabre um, sort of uh, vanitas issue of the skull. But yeah, I think that, I think that was an example of something no one had thought about. Um, it was challenging, um, but not technically, not technically complex or anything like that, really. Although you know, there are people who just liked it. Some people are, <clears throat> you know, right now skulls are quite, um, quite popular. Yeah, sure. Icon in, in, yeah, style, right. in fashion, unfortunately, although I think, I think that's waning. Um, but um, <clears throat> yes, I, I think that was also more of a conceptual piece. It wasn't a found object. Right. But it, it is definitely more conceptual than anything. I, I'd like to come back to your, 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 your comment about skulls waning because you, you, one has that sort of death of the maiden, um, the whole dance macabre, the whole um, people having skulls uh, in paintings and on their desks from the 14th, 15th century to keep death present in their mind. Mm -hmm. And then that sort of seemed to go into abeyance. And then, as you say, it's, it's sort of come back. Um, and that, that is an interesting, something we haven't really touched on is the influence, and maybe this isn't dis a distinction, but the influence of how society, society's mores, culture, um, norms, influence the art world into... Do you think that, that there, I mean, that what is art and what is viewed as art? Uh, uh, well, I certainly think that cultural and, and social phenomena can influence the representational art. <clears throat> and I think, for example, well, there are two things in, in, that have, in our recent cultural history, relatively recent. Um, one would be, say, the war, the um, very recent war in Iraq, I mean, it's over now, but it's, and I think also um, the AIDS epidemic brought death, you know, quite yes. a bit. Um, so that was, uh, I think, I think that both of those, and, you know, we had 9-11 here in the States. Um, so there, there are many, there are many things and then of course there is just death <laughs> yeah. it has always been you know um certainly on on the minds of um it's it's universal it's um, it, it's and it's inescapable 
and so um, it's the great unknown. <laughs> it, I mean, right. yeah, people, it, it's been a subject in, in art forever. I mean, from funerary faces and drawings and uh, yeah. things. And um, although, you know, see, the, the other problem is that many things that, uh, that I might refer to as an artwork, which I just did, like um, a funerary, uh, you know, say, um, uh, say a, a vase painting on a vessel used in a funeral rite. Was that made as art? Was, we don't know. Um, but certainly some instances of them are show more artistry than others. Yeah. And so art and death, I think, have, you know, have long been related, not in every case, but um, certainly time, you know, art and time is uh, an important thing. Um, you know, and, and there are these uh, works of art that, you know, are meant to be um, just briefly and <laughs> temporal, you know, um, and so those are, you know, or things that can't be located in time or can be located in time. Um, so, yeah, that, I, w I would say, yes, I mean, that, that Damien Hurst's skull, that's a good example. Um, is it just its obvious financial <laughs> value, which, you know, um, amps up the, the market value, but, um, or the market price, I should say. But what do you think, Ian, of the, the inflation that we've seen in the art market lately? Yeah, for me, it comes back in, perhaps I'm a little simplistic on that, but just in the somewhat sordid, um, it's sort of like a Bitcoin in some sense, in that I think a lot of people who are buying and selling this art, maybe one or two hang it in their house um, and, and gloat over it, I suppose. Um, but seldom uh, are they given, donated to museums for everyone to enjoy. So I see them as, as, uh, as an investment opportunity for a lot of people. And um, in fact, most of it, uh, these in, in huge uh, valuations, I think just have to be um, investments. And as such, uh, understandable, one can't judge. It's no different, I suppose, than buying a house or a stock. But it just seems a bit tawdry. And when you, well, this is an interesting point as I ramble on here. If, if, if someone were to um, buy a stock and hold it and it increases in value and they sell it, then people say that's fine, regardless of what you may feel about the capitalist <laughs> mechanisms behind it. But if you buy a painting and hold it, you know, don't put it on public display and then sell it later um, at, at, at some you know, increased value, is that, does that have a, it, it feels a little bit more exploitative, ex, ex, exploitive, um, hmm. you know, it's sort of a, you see what I'm saying? It, it, it feels different than other kinds of investments, but I think the, 
the purpose and the mechanism is the same. Um, so, anyway. do you? I mean, is it because I mean we don't know different buyers have different motivations. Yeah. Um, sometimes uh, it's out of just total love for for work, and you find anything. I mean, it's a little bit like a musical instrument. I find, you know, in fact, I read in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago that one of the best investments um, was, uh, you know, really fine string instruments like these old uh, yes. violins, like string, because they have appreciated like crazy. Right. Unfortunately, but I mean, really good instruments too, and especially in if you know someone, some really famous virtuoso uh, has played it or owned it, right. um, it, that increases the value even more. But someone might uh, find the instrument if someone had means to do so. They might find the, the instrument irresistible because of the sound. Um, that, that feels a little different to me. You're quite right. That feels a little different to me. So if, if I heard that somebody had bought a Stradivarius with $10 million or whatever and played it, or even better, gave it out to um, violinists uh, for them to use in concerts or whatever, I think that would be wonderful. And the, and the value of the instrument um, um, seems commensurate with its rarity and the unique sound that it has. If someone bought it though and stuck it in a vault and then sold it ten years later and made a you know bucket of money, that feels very different. So that's kind of what, like somebody bought a painting and then um, loaned it, which happens a lot, right? Uh, yeah. To museums and art galleries. <laughs> I think that that's that's great. Um, but I think so. What am I saying? I think. Uh, I, I I don't know why art is so valuable per per sort of gram. <laughs> you know, I mean, is it because it's it, is it what we've been talking about all along? The skill, the, does it present a crystallization of human genius? Um, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. no. Some cases, no. Well, then you get then we get into the thing of manipulation of the market, you know? and we also get into the value question. You know, what yeah. makes one art, work of art more aesthetically yeah. important right. or valuable? Um, yeah. But if you, yeah, and if you consider something, uh, what, well, one of my favorite places is um, the Barnes Collection in Philadelphia because there is this. Uh, businessman, physician, I guess he started, but he was a businessman. And he was able to collect art, um, remarkable. I mean, and he, he really he really did well in his, <laughs> in, in his acquisitions and, and whoever and who was advising him. Um, and, you know, the fact that he wanted to leave it, he, he wanted it to be left because he was so committed, first of all, to people learning to appreciate art and to disseminate it. Um, but he also lived with it and loved it. Um, and to me, that's, you know, sure. that's beautiful. Now, the example you gave of somebody um, having, you know, say, buying a, um, 
uh, a Rembrandt, which would be very costly indeed, and um, and putting it on loan, giving it, you know, loaning it to a museum um, or a historical institution, something like that. Um, you know that that becomes different. There's there are a whole other uh, concatenation of, um, of considerations here. We have moral considerations. You know that it's it's noble, it's praiseworthy, it's supererogatory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. Uh, but it's uh, you know, but, but is it um, is it any less obscene that the person may have paid you know three hundred million dollars for it? Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's yeah. I think one of the things that you're yes, reacting to, and yeah, that's yeah. an issue of I think you know yeah. ethics and social ethics. Yeah, but, but that's it, quite right, and that, I I had I had just uh, lost sight of that because you're quite right. What else could be done? Um, listen, Carol, um, we have how does that? I enjoyed our conversation very much. I just wondered if in the last uh, few minutes, if there's something you'd like to leave our listeners with or. Um, some thoughts um, that they could mull over? Well, um, <laughs> I'm not sure what kind of thoughts you want, if you want them highly theoretical. Or... No, no, just something that if there were, um, uh, I don't know, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I just sort of say. Well, uh, um, I would urge people to think closely about, you know, how important, Personally, I think it's very important to appreciate art <clears throat> and to see that when a fine artist, say someone like Mondrian, um, you know, pe people will will look at that and say, you know, why is that art? Well, it's not just because he hoodwinked someone into buying it and, you know, ma making it um, uh, famous and making him famous. Um, it, it's art because there is some something aesthetically important about it. And we have to look at it in, in terms of its, you know, creative value. And similarly with someone like Kandinsky or, well, Kandinsky is clear, um, but that there may be something more to art than, than people think. And it's not just as, as Dante says, it is, as Dante says, it's something that the eye cannot uh, cannot discern, um, but it may not be, um, there, there may be something very important <clears throat> for human life and that the definition of art is an important question and that I think art itself is, is of vital importance. So well, I don't I, know if you, I, if you agree, but I think- I that, certainly do. And I think that, that Danto's piece about the kind of human phenomenon and the, the fact that the art world is this, it's not just a subculture, but I think he shows that it really, truly transcends time and culture, history and culture, when he gives that matrix of style. Because he says, as he says, every time a new style emerges in art, it changes every artwork of the past. Yes. And right. I thought that was, I, I love that. Yeah. That part no, I, I think it's brilliant um, because then we discover that every any other work we have to assess. Well, is it is it this or is it like a Kate? Yeah, yeah, or not Kate? And so um, that's um, you know 
is uh, when surrealism emerged, then we could look at artworks from, say, other centuries and 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 see them as as having certain qualities that we wouldn't have before. So, yep. you know, it's this it's this wonderful transcendent realm that um, we have that I believe pe people need to leave themselves open to. I don't know if this sounds too cliched or simplistic um, compared to- No, I think that's, um, that, that's, um, those are great thoughts um, to leave our, our listeners with. And perhaps just one final thing we could say, we've been referring continuously in our discussion here to um, this paper by Arthur Danto um, titled The Art World. Um, and um, uh, I would encourage our listeners to um, to find it. Um, it's only four or five pa pages long and uh, is a very interesting and thought-provoking article. So I'd, I'd like to um, thank our guest again today, uh, Professor Carol Gould, um, for her um, uh, insights and uh, provocative uh, questions and thoughts on... Uh, what is art, I suppose you could call this. So thank you very much, Carol. Well, thank you, Ian. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com